everyone, and good morning. Welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Hopp here filling in in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger as uh, we're going to take a check of the forecast before we get into those headlines here in the Wednesday edition. We're bringing this to you on Thursday morning because we read this the day before since these papers air so early in the morning. And uh, if you're out and about, this is the 7 o'clock hour here on Iris. If you're not out and about, it's still time. You can go back to bed if you got no, nothing else to do. Unless you got to go to work, then get up and go to work. But taking a look at the forecast for Thursday, today, and uh, through Saturday, let's just say here, um, expect a snow for your Thursday. Windy conditions with a west wind increasing to 21 miles per hour in the afternoon, starting around 8 to 13 miles per hour earlier on. Winds could gust as high as 31 miles per hour. Uh, actually, let me update that. Yes, they could gust very high coming out of the west today. 90% uh, chance of precipitation, up to 2 inches possible of snow. The high near 33 degrees for your Thursday. For tonight, expect snow, more snow, yes, uh, before 7 p.m. Patchy snow blowing between 11 and 1 a.m., 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Cloudy conditions, wind chill values as low as 5 above the actual low of around 17 degrees for your overnight. Those winds from the west gusting as high as 33 miles per hour, looking at possibly uh, less than a half inch, actually no, less than one inch possible for Thursday night. But anyway... Uh, again, a high of, I'm sorry, a low, a low of 17 above wind chill values at 5. There's a lot of information here. It's a little confusing to look at. I'm looking at the National Weather Service forecast. Looking ahead for your Friday, tomorrow a slight chance of snow before 7 a.m., then a chance of flurries between 7 a.m. and 1 p.m., then a slight chance of snow after 1 p.m. Those winds from the west and northwest gusting to as high as 32 miles per hour. Cloudy with a high near 25 degrees, looking at a 20% chance of precipitation. Friday night, a slight chance of snow before 7 p.m., then a chance of flurries between 7 and 1 a.m., 7 p.m. and 1 a.m. Cloudy with low around 12 above. And then for your Saturday during the day, mostly cloudy with a high near 21 in blustery conditions. So it's going to be a white uh, week before Christmas for you all who like that sort of thing. I'm fine with it being a little brown and dry pavement, but hey, to each their own. But again, for your Thursday today, snow and a high near 33 degrees. Here as we get this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger underway. If you don't have any other place to go, might as well just go back to bed and listen to me read this to you. Vandals destroy Christmas spirit. Well-known holiday display is taken down. That's a story by Kelby Wingert. Kelby Wingert, also other Fort... Dodge front page news, County EMS Advisory Committee to look at solutions, another Kelby Wingert story, and also a story here by Bill Shea, Sector enters race for Fort Dodge Council. They'll be talking about Megan Secker, Secker, Secor, Secor, S-E-C-O-R, not Sector, Secor, my eyes fooled me for a minute, minute there. Anyway, getting into it, talking about this uh, vandalism. And the photo here shows the home at 1502 2nd Avenue. It has brought joy to many over the years with Halloween and Christmas decorations. This tradition has come to an end after vandals damaged several of the inflatable decorations. Yes, indeed. And it shows here it's a four-square type house, and it's got a nice big porch on it. It's painted yellow. And there's all kinds of blow-up Christmas decorations in the front yard, including a, a big uh, Santa thing with a, it looks like a 
lollipop rainbow over it in a little car or truck thing, and then a, a blow-up snowman, and also it looks to be some uh, statuettes of some reindeer and a sleigh, and they're all lit up. A very nice display there on the corner. The story begins, You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, or whoever has been vandalizing the inflatable Christmas decorations Bill Miller spends hours every year setting up in his yard. For years, Miller has enjoyed bringing the Christmas spirit and holiday joy to passerby on South 15th Street with his holiday lights and decorations. Miller's home, a large yellow house on the corner of 15th Street and 2nd Avenue South, is well known around Fort Dodge for its festive holiday decorations. Miller said he's had the tradition of decorating his yard for the holidays since he bought the house in 2008. My whole yard was done, Miller said, from one side of the house all the way around to the garage. It was done with lights and everything. Every year, people would stop to take pictures of the display, Miller said. He also tried to keep it looking fresh by picking up new decorations he found online at local stores or at flea markets. But thanks to unknown vandals, Miller has decided to pack up the decorations. While those who enjoyed driving by to see what new decorations Miller adds each year may feel disappointed, no one will be more disappointed than Miller's number one fan, his grandson, Connor Brokaw. He loves Christmas, Miller said. Brokaw, age 10, lives with epilepsy and spina bifida, two disorders that often land him in the hospital. When he's not in the hospital, Brokaw is pretty much glued to his grandfather's side. During the holidays, Brokaw helps his grandpa turn on inflatables and lights when it starts to get dark out. He looks forward to it every day, Miller said. He goes out and says, can we hit the switch yet? It wasn't just Christmas that Miller decorated for. Each October, an array of spooky inflatables, lights, and decorations filled the yard for Halloween. For years, for several years, until he couldn't locate any more inflatables, he also decorated for Thanksgiving. This made me happy, Miller said, of his decorating tradition. I've gotten upset when they started getting vandalized. I've gotten so upset when they started getting vandalized. Throughout the 14 years of putting up the decorations, Miller said there has been a few acts of vandalism, but this year was different. At Halloween, two of the inflatable decorations were slashed into. Miller and his daughter were able to repair the decorations and put them back out, where they remained untouched for the rest of the holiday. Since Miller set up the, de the Christmas decorations after Thanksgiving, five of the inflatables have been vandalized, he said. His big reindeer sleigh was slashed on the very first night it was set up. After a couple of other vandalisms, Miller decided to start taking down the decorations. However, after hearing some questions and concerns from family members and uh, actually from concerns of, from members of the community who noticed, he decided to try it one last time to put out more decorations. Last week, Brokaw fell ill and the family went with him to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. When Miller returned to Fort Dodge on Monday, he found the 12-foot inflatable Santa he added had been slashed. Miller said he decided to take down the remaining decorations because he can't afford to keep replacing them. And it takes a lot of time and energy to repair the ones that are damaged by vandals. He said he's also concerned that the vandals will start to try to cut the electrical wires on the decorations, which could be dangerous. If I put them back up, they're just going to continue to do it again, he said. Apparently, they just don't like Christmas. Most of all, Miller doesn't want to risk damage to Brokaw's favorite decoration, an inflatable of Santa Claus in a fire truck. He loves fire trucks and ambulances, Miller said of Brokaw. Brokaw, who is still at the Mayo Clinic, doesn't yet know about the decommissioning of the decorations. 
He's really going to be upset, Miller said, and I'm upset because he doesn't have his fire truck decoration out there. Though he has doubts he'll be able to recoup any cost of the damages from the vandals, Miller said he has filed a report with the Fort Dodge Police Department, and he asked that anyone who might have seen something to call the police. That's a sad story there. Very sad indeed. Moving on now, County EMS Advisory Committee to look at solutions. Another story by Kelby Winger. Webster County emergency medical service providers are coming together to look at how EMS is handled across the county and how the structure of the system in different agencies can best serve residents. Leaders from the Fort Dodge Fire Department as well as the volunteer fire departments and ambulance services throughout the county presented their concerns to the Webster County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday. With EMS staffing at the volunteer fire departments and ambulance services dwindling, Fort Dodge Fire Department medics are having to handle more and more medical calls in the rural communities across the county. Five years ago, FDFD Chief Steve Hergenretter said, Fort Dodge Fire Department ambulances had to go out to calls in the county about 100 times a year. This year, he said, they're on track to have well over 300 calls outside of city limits. During the day, Hergen Retter said, there are three staffed ambulances at the Fort Dodge Fire Department sent out an order of Medic 1, Medic 2, and Medic 3. Two additional reserve ambulances, Medic 4 and Medic 5, are used when the department receives additional medical calls. Hergen Retter said that fire fighters are pulled off the fire engines to staff those reserve ambulances. And that empties out the fire department for any response at all, he said. So far in 2022, Fort Dodge Fire Department has had 1,100 times where Medic 3 was sent out to calls. Medic 4 has had to go to calls 188 times, and Medic 5 has had to respond to calls uh, 47 times. If you combine those two together, that's 235 times so far this year that they've used every available resource in the city of Fort Dodge Fire Department, Hergen Redder said. One of the challenges the rural EMS services are facing are decreased numbers of volunteers who can act as first responders, emergency medical responders, or emergency medical technicians who can be first on scene of a medical call to provide the initial medical care until an ambulance or advanced EMS can arrive. Fifteen years ago, there were a pretty decent amount of first responders in all of the 13 communities in Webster County, Hergen Retter said. And at that time, there were four volunteer ambulances in the county. According to data from Webster County Emergency Management Coordinator Dylan Hagen, there are 65 registered EMTs in the county. However, less than half are active volunteers. According to the data he shared with the Board of Supervisors, Calendar Fire Department has two firefighter EMTs. Southwest Webster EMS in Gallery has 10 EMTs, plus five drivers certified in CPR and first aid. And the Dumcombe and Otho Fire Departments each have six firefighters and EMTs. Contributing to the shortage of EMS volunteers is the cost of the classes and certification, Hagen said. To certify as an EMR, it costs $975 and takes three months of 3.5 credit hours. An EMT certification takes five months and eight credit hours and costs $1,949. Someone wanting to certify as a paramedic would need to spend two years or 62.5 credit hours and $13,446. Hergen Redder said he believes there are solutions to these problems that the various EMS agencies can come up with collaboratively. 
He told the Board of Supervisors that an EMS advisory committee will be convened to look at the current issues and find solutions, which might include eventually calling for a county referendum to classify EMS as an essential service, similar to what other nearby counties have done recently. I think it's in the best interest of Webster County as a whole to keep our citizens informed and make all of our communities, not just Fort Dodge, but all those communities that people choose to live in, like Lehigh or Dayton or Vincent, that they have some type of EMS response, Hergen Retter said. Our goal is to come up with a system that is simple to understand and that is affordable to all the citizens and something that maintains a response in every community. I think that's the most important thing that we have some first responder capability with good equipment and trained staff. Hague had noted that until recently, there were also seven EMS transporting services that cover the county. The Clare Fire Department recently shuttered its ambulance transporting service, leaving just Dayton EMS, Farnhamville EMS, Fort Dodge Fire Department, Southwest Webster, Stratford EMS, and Vincent EMS. Hagen said that many of those ambulance services have antiquated, outdated equipment, quote-unquote, which can deter some potential volunteers. The average age of a volunteer firefighter or, or EMT in Iowa is 70, Hagen said. The EMS Advisory Committee, which will include six EMS providers from different agencies in the county, as well as Dr. Rachel Sokol, medical director for the Fort Dodge Fire Department. I think the committee just needs to look at what's best for the county and how we move forward, Hagen said. It might be restructuring. How we operate countywide, it's going to be hard conversations, but we've got to do what's best for the citizens in the community. The group plans to give an update to the Board of Supervisors on January 24th, 2023. All right, moving on now to our final front page story. Secor enters race for Fort Dodge Council. This story by Bill Shea. Megan Secor has entered the race for the at-large seat on the Fort Dodge City Council that will be filled in the February 7th special election. In my 13 years of being here, I've really come to admire Fort Dodge, she said. It's a community that's doing great things, and I want to be part of that. Because I've lived in other places, I feel like I have a unique perspective, she added. Secor said her priorities as a member of a council would include conversation, and bringing more attention to various grant programs that citizens can take advantage of for things like home repairs. This is her first campaign for public office. Secor, who lives at 2531 Woodland Drive, is the co-owner and marketing coordinator for Soldier Creek Winery north of Fort Dodge. The candidate is a native of Texas. Her parents, who are native Iowans, moved the family to Green in northeast Iowa. There she graduated from North Butler High School. She then earned a bachelor's degree in horticulture from Iowa State University in Ames. She and her husband Robert have two children. Secor is one of six candidates to enter the race so far, prompting a January 10th primary election to narrow the field to two candidates. The other candidates are Kyrie Borsay, Stephen Hansen, Richard Higgins, Wayne Mason, Eugene Newsom, and Jim Seward. All right, that takes care of all the front page news. Moving on now to... Page two, Christmas countdown. And the photo here shows a lovely home at 2911 Soldier Creek Drive that uses a combination of white and multicolored lights to glow in the evenings. To nominate a holiday lights display to be featured in the Messenger, you can email editor at messengernews.net. And on page 
two, we have dogs gifted by North Kim resettle in South Korean Zoo. This is an AP story, an international story. A pair of dogs and their white uh, husky looking dogs. What are these? Does it give a breed? Well, anyway, the story begins. Dateline, Seoul, South Korea. A pair of dogs gifted by the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un four years ago ended up at a zoo in South Korea after a dispute over who should finance the caring of the animals. Kevin had given the uh, two uh, dogs, the two white uh, Pung-san hunting dogs, a breed indigenous to North Korea, to then-South Korean President Moon Jae-in as a gift following their summit talks in Pyongyang in 2018. But liberal Moon gave up the dogs last month, citing a lack of financial support for the canines from the current conservative government led by President Yoon Suk-yul. He gave up his dogs. That's sick. The dogs named Gomi and Songang were moved to a zoo run by a local government in the southern city of Gwangju last Friday. After a temporary stay at a veterinary hospital in the southeastern city of Daeju, zoo officials said, with Gwangju Mayor Kang Gijong in attendance, the dogs were shown off Monday with their name tags around their necks as journalists and other visitors took photos. Gomi and Songgang are a symbol of peace in South North Korean reconciliation and cooperation. We will raise them well like we cultivate a seed for peace, Kang said, according to his office. The dogs have six offspring between them, all of them born after they came to South Korea. One of them named Biul has been raised in the Gwangju Zoo since 2019. The remaining five are in other zoos and a public facility in South Korea. Guangzhou Zoo officials says, say they'll try to raise Beol and her parent dogs together, though they're currently kept separately as they don't recognize each other. Gomi and Songang officially belong to state property. While in office, Moon raised them at the presidential residence. After leaving office in May, Moon was able to take them to his private home thanks to a change of law that allowed presidential gifts to be managed outside the presidential archives if they were animals or plants. But in early November, Moon's office accused the Yoon government of re refusing to cover the cost for the dog's food and veterinary care. Yoon's office denied the accusation, saying it never prevented Moon from keeping the animals and that the discussions about providing financial support were still ongoing. Moon, a champion of reapproachment with North Korea, was credited with arranging now-dormant diplomacy on North Korea's nuclear program but also faced criticism that his engagement policy allowed Kim to buy time and boost his country's nuclear capability in the face of international sanctions. Yoon has accused Moon's engagement policy of being submissive to North Korea. Poor abandoned dogs. I hope they do okay in that zoo. All right, moving on now to more news. And actually here, this one looked like something different. I've got another front page story that I skipped over. By accident here, it's not formatted like the rest, so this is a story. It's called Taking Center Stage with Josh Madden, Building Friendships. It's a story by uh, Chris Johnson. Madden creates bonds while staying busy in arts and sports. When Fort Dodge Senior High had just finished its winter musical concert, Josh Madden had little time to rest. The Dodger senior took part in the trifecta, playing the cello for orchestra, the tuba for band, and singing in the choir. It can take quite a bit of energy to keep up with the lessons of orchestra, band, and choir, Madden said. Sometimes I miss them, but that's why I focus on making them up. 
I only started band my junior year, which helped because as upperclassmen, you have a little more freedom with your time to allow for more activities. For most preparing for a concert like that and being in all musical categories, along with numerous other events, it's tough. But for Madden, it's the enjoyment of being active. I allow myself time to work on my activities. And sometimes it can be a rush. But it's in the times of rest where I can catch up on things I miss, Madden said. I like to be busy, and so those activities allow me to be as busy as possible. Along with the musical arts, Madden is involved in marching band, ambassadors, fall play, musical speech, and musical theater. Madden also has an athletic side, competing in cross-country, track, and soccer. Doing the musical does interfere with soccer, but you have to be willing to give up some time for your sport to do the musical, Madden said. Most of the time, the coaches and teachers are understanding, and I will try to work with the schedule I have. For Madden, being in so much gives him a chance to meet people and create bonds. I love to be involved in so much because it gives me a chance to meet others and make a lot of friendships, Madden said. That is how quite a few of my friendships started, being in the same activities as others. Madden, who has been performing since the seventh grade, enjoys showcasing his talent and putting on a show. What I love about performing is acting because that's when I can be creative with my characters and improvise when necessary, Madden said. I started performing in seventh grade for the middle school musical, and the main reason I started was my mom, who wanted me to try new things and to get out of my comfort zone. Madden, who performed in Fort Dodge's musical Footloose, was able to make memories and share his skills. Being in the musical, you get to make memories and make friends while also learning new things about people you didn't know about before, Madden said. My favorite thing was when a group of us went around playing Thriller for Halloween. While maintaining such a busy schedule, Madden has been able to lean on his family and friends for support. My family, for sure, has been my biggest influence in who I am and what I do, Madden said. Other influences are my tuba players and all three of my music teachers, along with my Spanish teacher, Mrs. Henders. After high school, Madden plans on attending college and majoring in criminal justice. And in a short story here on page 3, Harvest Vineyard Church, Neighborhood Christmas Night Thursday. The Harvest Vineyard Church at 1402 9th Avenue North is holding a Neighborhood Christmas Night from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Thursday at the church. That'd be today. Those attending can enjoy Christmas goodies, decorating cookies, and playing games. There will be a drawing for door prizes. And uh, the only thing I have left on page 8, or actually 2, just Two other papers called A2, so if I accidentally slip up, that's my bad. We have this date in history. This is Wednesday, December 14th, day in history, as we're bringing this to you on uh, December the 15th on Thursday. So the, with uh, yesterday, there are th it's the 348th day of 2022. There are 17 days left in the year. On this date in 1799, that be December the 14th, the first president of the United States, a good one, George Washington, died at his home in Mount Vernon, Virginia, at the age of 67. That's after they, uh, wasn't after they used leeches and bled him? It was terrible. He could have lived. In 1861, Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria, died at Windsor Castle at age 42. In 1964, the U.S. Supreme Court, in Heart of Atlanta Motel versus United States, ruled that Congress was within its authority to enforce the Civil Rights Act of 1964 against racial discrimination by private businesses, in this case a motel that refused to cater to blacks. 
1985, former New York Yankees outfielder Roger Maris, who'd hit 61 home runs during the 1961 season, died in Houston at age 51. In 2006, a British police inquiry concluded that the deaths of Princess Diana and her boyfriend Dodie Fayed in a 1997 Paris car crash were a tragic accident and that allegations of murder, conspiracy, were unfounded. And uh, moving on now to more news. From the In Brief section here on page 5, L.A. racism scandal prompts new rounds of city council protests. Dateline Los Angeles, California. The city council was disrupted Tuesday by another round of boisterous foul-mouthed protests after a councilman facing widespread calls to resign for his involvement in a racism scandal defiantly returned to the chamber and took his seat. Councilman Kevin DeLeon's appearance prompted some council members to walk out amid shouting and chanting from rival groups in the, in the audience, while Council President Paul Krikorian ordered a recess amid the outburst. The turmoil represented a reprise of a Friday meeting where DeLeon appeared in the ornate chamber for the first time since mid-October. He is the only council member involved in the scandal still resisting calls from Joe Biden to step down while continuing to collect his annual salary of $229,000, among the most lucrative paydays for city council members in the nation. Protesters were shouting and waving signs in the audience throughout the meeting. During a public comment period, most of those who spoke denounced De Leon as a racist and called on the councilman to resign, but some supporters defended him and lauded his work in his district, which includes downtown Los Angeles and the heavily Latino Boyle Heights neighborhood. The continuing disruptions turned the meeting at times into a veritable theater of the absurd, with protesters screaming profanities, city staffers pleading for calm, and police evicting some protesters who refused repeated orders to settle down. In other news, brief news, Oregon governor commutes all 17 of the state's death sentences, Dateline Salem, Oregon. Oregon Governor Kate Brown announced Tuesday that she is commuting the sentences of all of the state's 17 inmates awaiting execution, saying their death sentences will be changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Brown, a Democrat with less than a month remaining in office, said she was using her executive clemency powers to commute the sentences and that her order will take effect on Wednesday. I have long believed that justice has not advanced by taking a life, and the state should not be in the business of executing people, even if a terrible crime placed them in prison, Brown said in a statement. Oregon has not executed a prisoner since 1997. and Brown's first news conference after becoming governor in 2015, she announced she would continue the death penalty moratorium imposed by her predecessor, former Governor John Kitzhaber. So far, 17 people have been executed in the U.S. in 2022, all by lethal injection and all in Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, Missouri, and Alabama, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. And time is short here, so we do have uh, some time, though, for a few more briefs here as they've come up on uh, page 6. Police say a customer shoots St. Louis KFC employee over no corn. How important. Dateline, St. Louis, Missouri. Or for you in Missouri, Missouri. A KFC employee in St. Louis has been hospitalized after a customer shot him because he was upset that the restaurant had run out of corn, police say. The shooting happened Monday evening in the city's central West End neighborhood. Investigators said the man tried to place an order in the restaurant's drive through lane. He became upset and threatened employees when he was told the business was out of corn, police said. The man had a handgun when he drove up to the drive-thru window. 
A 25-year-old employee who was outside to talk to the driver returned to the restaurant and said he had been shot, police said. The driver flooded and has not been arrested as of Tuesday afternoon. The victim was hospitalized in critical but stable condition. Also, Fusion Breakthrough is a milestone for climate and clean energy. Dateline Washington. Scientists announced Tuesday that they have for the first time produced more energy in a fusion reaction than was used to ignite it. A major breakthrough in the decades-long quest to harness the process that powers the sun. Researchers at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California achieved the result last week, the Energy Department said. Known as a net energy gain, the goal has been elusive because fusion happens at such high temperatures and pressures that it is incredibly difficult to control. The breakthrough will pave the way for advancements in national defense and the future of clean power, Energy Secretary Jennifer Grand, Grand Holm and other officials said. What else do we have here? We have a messenger editorial. And we also have a column by Cal Thomas. Maybe not the smartest person in the world, but we'll bring it to you nonetheless here as it's printed. But first, let's take a check of our obituaries here as we are at the halfway point of this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for this, I guess it would be Thursday edition. It's the Wednesday edition brought to you on Thursday. Does that make sense? Since we're uh, airing this so early in the morning, we record it the day before. As we mentioned before, this is the Wednesday, December 14th, 2022 edition. I'm Andrew Halp, your reader. We have two obituaries listed here, actually three, and it looks possibly there are some death notices as well. All right, let's get this started with Sylvia M. Walters, age 88 of Fort Dodge, passed away Sunday, December 11th at Friendship Haven. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. Thursday, December 15th at the Loffersweiler Funeral Home. Burial will follow at Corpus Christi Cemetery. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. until the time of the funeral service or time of the service at the funeral home. Loffersweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Survivors include her daughters, Diane D. Bruin of Fort Dodge, Colleen Calder of Las Vegas, Nevada, Chris married to Mike Rael of Fort Dodge, Roxanne married to Stephen Shaw of Las Vegas, Nevada, Patty Walters of Rockwell City, Sister Janice Foster of Fort Dodge, 11 grandchildren, 24 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. She was preceded in death by her husband, Thomas Walters, parents Roscoe and Alvia, maiden name Lane, Vigdal was their married last name, daughter Donna Sullivan and sister Joyce Halber, grandson Michael Schmidt, great-granddaughter Nicole Rial. Sylvia M. Vigdahl was born July 29, 1934, in Dolliver, Iowa. She was raised and educated in Armstrong and graduated from Armstrong High School in 1952. On May 31, 1952, she was united in marriage to Thomas Tom Walters in Fairmont, Minnesota. The couple were married for over 68 years. Sylvia retired from Globe Union in 1990. She was a longtime member of Holy Trinity Church. Sylvia loved flower gardening and was the queen of sending cards for all occasions to everyone she knew. She was a devoted wife, mother, and grandmother. Her family would like to thank all the special people at Friendship Haven for taking such good care of her. You know who you are. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. Our next obituary is for Merle J. Carney, last name spelled K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. Merle J. Carney, age 82, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Friday, December 9, 2022, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. 
Funeral services will be held 11 a.m. on Saturday, December 17th at the Holy Trinity Church with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating the Mass of Christian Burial. Burial will follow at Corpus Christi Cemetery with military rites conducted by VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Army Honor Guard. Visitation will be on Saturday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. at the church. The Lawfers Weiler Funeral Home is serving the family. Survivors include his brothers, Mervyn Carney and his wife, Diane of Fort Dodge, and Robert Carney and his wife, Linda of Marion, Iowa, sister-in-law, Cheryl Carney of Colville, 23 nieces and nephews, numerous other cousins and loved ones. He was preceded in death by his parents, James and Rose. Rose's maiden name was Brennan, but their married last name is Carney. Sisters Rita Mersch, Mary Schneider, and Joanne Shaw, infant brother James and brother Eugene Carney. Merle J. Carney was born on June 3, 1940 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. He was raised on a farm northwest of Fort Dodge and attended country schools. Merle later graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High School and Junior College. He then went to work at the Fort Dodge school system. Merle served in the U.S. Army from June of 1961 to June of 1964. He returned to Fort Dodge and went back to work for the Fort Dodge Community School District where he was employed for 58 years as a bus driver. Merle was semi-retired in 2003, but continued to drive bus. He was a member of Holy Trinity Parish, Knights of Columbus, and the American Legion. Memorials may be left to Holy Trinity Parish. And one short obituary here for Wayne Green of Twin Lakes. Wayne Green, age 72, passed away tragically as a result of an accident while vacationing in the British Virgin Islands. Funeral services are pending at Larson Weishar Funeral Home in Manson. All right, that concludes our obituaries for today. We do have uh, some notices here to bring you for death notices from the Lawfer Schweiber and Sievers Funeral Home located at 307 South 12th Street in Fort Dodge. First for Sylvia and Walter is age 88. Her funeral is on Thursday, 11 a.m. That's today. We read her obituary. Ray Krause, age 92, funeral service, 10 at 30 a.m. Friday, Holy Trinity Church with visitation Friday, 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the church. And visitation Thursday, that'd be today, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Knights of Columbus Rosary, 7 p.m. all at the funeral home. From there we go to Bonnie G. Byro, age 87. Her funeral is Friday at 11 a.m. at the funeral home, visitation Friday at 10 a.m. at the time until the time of service. From there we go to Francisco Vesuedo, age 69. His funeral will be at 11 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Visitation from 4 to 6 p.m. Friday at the funeral home. And then finally, Michael J. Kearney, who we just read from, age 82, whose funeral is Saturday at 11 a.m. at the Holy Trinity Church. Visitation is Saturday from 9.30 to 11 a.m. at the church. That's all of our obituaries and death notices for today. Moving on now to the opinion section of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Check out the Farm News Ag Show. This is the Messenger Editorial. Event offers chance to meet experts and see vendors. An upcoming event will give people a chance to hear from experts in the field of agriculture, get some insight on the latest developments in the commodities markets, and check out the offerings of various ag businesses. And don't forget the food, which will include a free pancake breakfast. What kind of event will offer all that? It's called the CJ BioAmerica Presents the 20th Annual Farm News Ag Show. The show hours are 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Friday and 7.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturday. It will be held at the Webster County Fairgrounds south of Fort Dodge on Old Highway 169. 
The lineup of featured speakers includes Chad Hart, professor of economics at Iowa State University in Ames, Dennis Toady, director of the United States Department of Agriculture Midwest Climate Hub, Kelvin Liebold, farm and ag business management specialist for Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, Mark Licht, associate professor of agronomy and cropping system specialist for Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, David Cruz, chairman of Comstock Investments and author of the Comstock Report. During the show, the shed will be raffled off to raise money for Backpack Buddies. That program provides food to qualifying school children so that they will have something nutritious to eat over the weekends. Taking in all the sights and activities at the show will surely work up a person's appetite. There will be food available to satisfy that appetite. Webster County pork producers will cook lunch on Friday. The free pancake breakfast will be from 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Saturday. The Webster County beef producers will cook lunch on Saturday. Yum. We encourage everyone with an interest in agriculture to attend the show. It offers a great opportunity to learn and have fun at the same time. That sounds like a blast. And now we move on to Cal Thomas, who we all love to hear from, I'm sure. Cinema departs the Democratic Party. Leaving aside any possible undeclared motives for leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an independent, Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema has said some things that have needed to be said for a long time. In an op-ed for the Arizona Republic, Sinema wrote, Americans are told what we have for only two choices, that we have only two choices, Democrat or Republican, and that we must subscribe wholesale to policy views that parties hold, views that have pulled further and further toward extremism. She added this is a false choice. More about extremism in a moment. Cinema is still expected to mostly vote with Democrats and maybe is strategically positioning herself for re-election in 2024. In her announcement last October that she's leaving the Democratic Party, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii outdid Cinema. She said the party is now under the complete control of the elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness accusing it of racializing every issue, stoking anti-white racism, and actively working to undermine our God-given freedoms enshrined in our Constitution. Concerning cinema, little is likely to change. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, has said she will keep her committee assignments. A Wall Street Journal editorial notes that cinema voted for Biden's priorities some 90% of the time this Congress, where her independence mattered in the last two years, is preserving the Senate filibuster and opposing the worst elements of the Build Back Better plan, especially its tax rate increases that enraged the unforgiving left that now dominates the Democratic Party. Back to the notion of extremism. The word is used by each party against the other. The first definition of extreme on dictionary.com says of a character or kind farthest removed from the ordinary or average. Haven't we redefined what used to be considered ordinary and average? The CVS where I received my latest COVID-19 booster asked for my gender assigned at birth. Is that ordinary or average or is it extreme? Is it extreme to try to prevent more abortions and protect women from regrets many feel after having had them? Is it extreme to allow drag queens to lead story hours in public libraries, but deny Christian author and actor Kirk Cameron the same privilege? Which is more extreme, having an open southern border that allows hundreds of thousands to enter the country illegally, some with deadly fentanyl pills and other drugs, or finishing the wall and allowing for their processing at established entry points? Is it extreme to allow the government to expand in size and cost, creating nearly $32 trillion debt, or attempt to cut spending and balance the budget for our future financial health? 
Is it extreme to oppose thousands of new IRS agents who will conduct more audits on wealthy Americans and businesses or limit their power by reforming the indecipherable tax code? As noted by the Tax Foundation, the government printing office set sells its spread over two volumes, and according to them, book one is 1,404 pages and book two is 1,248 pages for a total of 2,652 pages. At perhaps 450 words per average, that puts the tax code at well over 1 million words. That sounds extreme to me. Is it extreme to protect seniors already receiving or about to receive Social Security and Medicare while reforming those programs for future generations? Growth programs are projected to run out of money by 2035 when only about 80% of today's benefits may be available. Good luck, Senator Cinema, in your efforts to combat extremism. Your challenge will be less defining what is extreme and more defining what is normal. That written by Cal Thomas. One more news piece here before we move on to the sports section. Christian Singer Williamson to perform in Fort Dodge. Story by Brandon Bruschke. Jenny Williamson will return Friday to perform her annual Christmas concert at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Fort Dodge. She is a Christian singer and has been performing at St. Paul Lutheran Church for 18 years. This year's concert will begin at 6.30 p.m. Friday at the church at 400 South 13th Street. Williamson grew up in DeSoto, Kansas, and she always knew she wanted to pursue a career in music. My dad was a minister of music, so I grew up in front the front row of a church and watched Christmas cantatas and concerts and then decided to go into music myself, she said. And so I studied music at Missouri at Northwest Missouri State University and then went on to get my master's at Ohio University. Then I moved to Nashville and wanted to just pursue music in whatever way I could. When speaking on the importance of music in her life, Williamson said, It's my language. When we don't know what to say, somebody turns on a song, or when somebody feels something emotionally like they just want to sing or dance or something. Music is always a part of every season. It seems like there's, you know, no matter what the scenario, a funeral, a celebration of any kind, there's always music. It's another language that I love to speak, and my dad taught me from a very early age a lot of really unique Christmas carols, and I think I love to do those this time of year. It's like I said, it's a language, but sometimes we hear it differently when it is set to music, she added, especially maybe a new one that they hadn't heard before. So it's an opportunity to use a different language to reach a whole different crowd where words hit the mind and music hits the heart. Williamson also highlighted the importance of her family in her music, stating, We love it. I get to do this with my family. My husband does all the marketing and producing, and then my kids also sing and dance with me all summer and at the concerts. Though Williamson grew up in Kansas, she does have close ties to Fort Dodge. Her husband, Brian Williamson, grew up in Fort Dodge and attended St. Paul Lutheran Church. My husband actually grew up in Fort Dodge, she says and grew up there at St. Paul Lutheran, and so we became quite good friends with Pastor Al Henderson, Williams said, and he invited us to do a Christmas concert 18 years ago. That concert was months after an arson fire destroyed the church building. Williamson continued by saying they were in the process of rebuilding. They were still meeting in the gym. The very first Christmas concert that we ever came and did there. And so... We really just love the community and giving back. In a way, it's where it all started because my husband, like I said, went to school there. 
He grew up in that church, his family, his grandparents, all of his cousins, everybody goes to church or went to church there. And so he just loved to give back to that community. Williamson views the concert as a way to give a moment of respite to the community, stating, this world just keeps us extra busy. And sometimes it's nice to have people just sit down and just be able to remember a song that they knew when they were little or we sing a lot of stuff that I've written as well. And so I love to share some new stuff as well, but also remind people of some of the good old Christmas songs that they've learned a long time ago. When discussing what she looks forward to with this upcoming concert, Williamson highlighted how it has become a tradition for many people and that she gets to be a part of that. There's something about Fort Dodge. It's like coming back home, she said. Everybody just makes everybody feel welcome and to see some familiar faces and know that people do this for their family tradition is so fun. And so it's just an honor to come back and be a part of this community. Williamson also wanted to make sure the community knows that this concert is for everybody, regardless of their involvement with St. Paul. It's hosted at St. Paul's, but it's for the community, she said. It's for anybody and everybody. So if you want to go to that, it's at St. Paul Lutheran Church there, the big church, Missouri Synod Church, 400 South 13th Street. Admission is free. That happens at 6.30 p.m. on Friday. It's the Christmas concert by Jenny Williamson. And moving on now to the sports section. Finding a Rhythm. Gale Boys Can't Slow Down Sixth-Rated Links. This is written by Dana Becker. The Webster City Boys are still trying to find some traction here early in the season. After getting a late start and with a first-year head coach in Brett Radcliffe, the sixth-ranked Class 3A Links are looking more and more comfortable with each game. They showed that here on Tuesday night, opening North Central Conference play with a convincing 68-33 victory over St. Edmund. Senior Jamie Grosholm scored a game-high 28 points, knocking down six three-pointers, while classmate Ty McKinney added 14 to lead the way for Webster City. 3-0 overall in the conference, 1-0 in the league. It's been a weird season with our schedule and just playing three games at this point, said Ratcliffe, a former All-Stater for Webster City High School. Normally, we'd have played eight or nine by this point, but that's just how it's gone, and we have to play the schedule we have. We're still working on things, but I thought we came out strong in the second half. We wanted to get some stops in a row there after the half, and we did that. The Lynx held the Gales 1-5 and 0-3 in the uh, league who uh, to just three points in the third quarter. St. Evan was playing without regular starters, Jackson Palmer and Sam Miracle, who both missed the game due to illness. I thought it was a tremendous opportunity for those kids to get a chance to show what they can do. SEHS head coach Adolph Koshendorfer said, that'd be St. Edmunds High School, S-E-E-S, some of them are kind of on the border of playing a lot or a little, and for the most part, they held their own against a very good team. Jack McElroy had 13 points, 7 rebounds, 2 steals, and a block to lead the Gales, while Johnny Dickerson added 8 points, 6 rebounds, and 2 steals. Dickerson also knocked down a pair of triples. Jack is just ahead of the curve despite being a freshman, Coach Endorfer said. 
and Johnny is such a coachable kid. He's willing to listen and try anything out there that we ask him to do. Webster City has held each of its first three opponents under 36 points, besting St. Edmund, South Central Calhoun, and Pocahontas area. When we can play defense like that, it opens up everything on the offensive end, Ratcliffe said. It allowed us to get out and make some easy buckets in transition. Grossum had eight in the first before sinking four three-pointers in the second. He also had four rebounds, two steals, and a block, while Briar Claver added six points, nine boards, three steals, and a block. Jamie has really worked hard to improve his overall game, Ratcliffe said. He is such a strong athlete, and we've really worked on having him get to the basket more to open up his outside shot. He did a great job doing that Tuesday night. Braden Doring added four points, seven rebounds, and two steals for the Lynx. Webster City returns to the court on Friday when they host defending co-NCC champion Clarion Goldfield Dows in a legacy game at the Webster City Middle School. St. Edmund travels to fifth-ranked 3A Clear Lake on Friday. Another sports news from page 11, starting on page 11. Dodger girls blitz Hoover. Fort Dodge now 5-0. Dateline Des Moines. The beat goes on for the Fort Dodge girls basketball team. The Dodgers won their fifth game in as many tries on the young season here Tuesday, blistering Des Moines Hoover by a final score of 58-10. Head coach Scott Messerly's squad was relentlessly defensively relentless defensively against the winless Huskies with their season 0-7 overall. We used our size and looked inside to establish things. Offensively, Messerly said, we played pretty well overall on defense, especially in the first half. We were trying to clean some things up and keep our intensity high, but got a little sloppy at times. Everyone played significant minutes, which is a plus. Our fast break worked pretty well for the most part, and we didn't settle very often for a mediocre or bad shot. We worked to get open and a better look. Senior post player Payteen Hivoli had 15 points to lead the Dodgers, who were up 37-4 by halftime and didn't allow a single point in the second quarter. Classmate Laney Mail added 12 and freshman L.J. Mayle, number 9, junior Mackenzie McElrath, number 8, and sophomore Mia McCaleb, number 8, next in line. Hibley and Laney Mayle grabbed six rebounds, each for Fort Dodge Senior High, which is off to its best start in 21 years. McCaleb dished out three assists, and McElrath came up with six steals. Payteen and Laney did a nice job of keeping the ball high and going back up with it rather than putting it on the floor, Messerly said. They can both do a lot of damage that way on the blocks. We have two more road games this week, so we wanted to make sure to stay as fresh and balanced as possible. Everyone contributed. The Dodgers head to Humboldt on Thursday before visiting Marshalltown on Friday. All right, we have time for one more short story here. Crooks reaches career milestones for Garrigan. Future Cyclone is sixth player in state with 2,000 points and 1,000 rebounds. A story by Chris Johnson. Dateline Algona, Iowa. Audi Crooks keeps adding to her legacy, and recently she etched her name into the state's record books. Crooks, the future Iowa State Cyclone, became only the sixth player in Iowa girls' high school history to reach 2,000 career points and 1,000 career rebounds. 
She has been a four-year starter, and she succeeds at a high level because she grinds, said Bishop Garrigan head coach Brandon Schwab. She has good teammates that feed her the ball, and she works hard for position. In transition, she knows where to be and to call for the ball. We are a good team, and she is the focal point on offense and defense, and when she gets 15 to 20 touches. The six foot three recruit is the daughter of the late Fort Dodge graduate Jimmy Crooks, as well as Michelle Vislam Cook, a former Garrigan star. Audie became the 21st person in Iowa history to reach the 2,000 point scoring mark at 2,046. She ranks 16th on the state's all time offensive charts. Pocahontas area graduate Ellie Ruffridge at 2,951 points is still Iowa's career leader. Crooks became the 33rd player to reach 1,000 career rebounds. She is 18th on the list with 1,049 in her career. She joins Southeast Webster's Jennifer Jorgensen, Keokuk Cardinals Stritch's Jennifer Getz, Lindsay Hones of Twin Cedars, Hallie Christofferson of Exira, and Kelsey Bolte of Battle Creek Ida Grove as the only 2,000.1,000 rebound player players in the 5-on-5 Iowa history, in 5-on-5 Iowa history. So far this season, Crooks has 174 points and 82 rebounds, averages of 29 points and 13.7 boards. In her second game of the year, Crooks broke her own single-game scoring record with a 48-point outing against Providence Academy with 48 points. Her previous best was 44. Crooks is averaging 23.3 points and 11.9 rebounds for her career. She is very humble, Schwab said. After the game, she was taking pictures and signing autographs in the Garner student section with all the young kids. She just wants to win the game and improve as a team. And there it is. That's all the time we have left for this episode. This is the reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger, the Wednesday, December 14th edition here on Iris, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. This is Andrew Hopp, your reader, filling in. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great being with you. Uh, this is the Thursday airing of the Wednesday edition here, the 7 o'clock hour. The Mason City Globe Gazette is next, so stay tuned. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and straight ahead. <laughs>